on Pop Culture Confidential, the director of an inspiring documentary about an autistic boy who connects to the world through the films of Disney. And Jessica Kiang of The Playlist guides us through some of the biggest trends and controversies of the film season. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biru. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. This week, I talked to Jessica Kiang of The Playlist, whose articles and perspectives on film and pop culture I try never to miss. We talk about Donald Trump's cameos in film and TV through the years, and how very little has changed, unfortunately, in how he wants to project himself to the world. Also, separating art from the artist and the case of Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation. And what are Jessica's movie hits and misses from the film festival circuit as we move into award season? But now. I first came across the story of Owen Suskind a few years back when I read the book Life Animated, written by his father, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ron Suskind. This is a very personal story and now a documentary by Oscar-winning director Roger Ross Williams about the Suskind family, Owen, his parents Ron and Cornelia, and his older brother Walter. Owen was a lively three-year-old when suddenly and without warning he stopped talking entirely. His motor skills deteriorated and autism was diagnosed. His parents describe it as if their son had vanished, been kidnapped. Several years later, they suddenly heard Owen saying something they could barely understand, juicervos, which turned out to be just your voice. It's a phrase from The Little Mermaid. Over and over again, he said these words, speaking for the first time. It turns out that this was not just repetition. Owen was communicating through the stories of the Disney films that his family had been watching. Owen was communicating the themes and stories and connecting them to what he saw in his own life. Big questions about life being unfair and why he had no friends. Owen identified most with the sidekick characters in the movies, like Pumbaa, and wrote his own story, The Land of the Lost Sidekicks, which Roger Ross Williams has had animated in his movie. There is a boy who is just like other boys. Until one night, he sees from his window a storm on the horizon. Howie, who are you? I'm Peter Pan, and you can. All of a sudden, at three years old, Owen vanishes. The doctor says, let me explain what autism is. Some of the kids don't ever talk again. I remember thinking, I'm just going to hold you so tight and love you so much that whatever is going on will go away. We're beginning to give up hope. And one day, we're watching the Disney animated movies. And he says he doesn't want to grow up like Mowgli or Peter Pan. I'm very happy to be joined by director Roger Ross Williams, who was the first African-American director to win an Oscar for his short film, Music by Prudence. He also directed the critically acclaimed feature documentary, God Loves Uganda. Mr. Williams, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Um, can I start a little bit from the beginning? Tell me about Owen's journey. When did the family, the Suskinds, discover that something was different? 
Um, well, it was a, about um, three years old. You know, Owen was a happy, talkative, communicative little boy, a three-year-old, um, running around and and communicating with his parents. And then um, he just he just stopped making eye contact. He lost his speech, and um, that's when the Suskinds realized something was wrong. And it was you know, in the film, Ron compares it to a kidnapping. He says, "Someone kidnapped our son." Yeah, that's a very emotional and a way of putting it. You really understand understand that. Now, is this a, a something that happens? Is is a certain type of autism that comes like this suddenly? Yes, um, I think a third of all people with autism are what they call regressively autistic. So they become autistic around between two and three years old. Mm. Now, in, in the film, you really see this is a family of writers and communicators. Um, Ron Suskind is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. What, was this sort of an extra difficult thing for them? You know, Ron is such a, you know, he's an in-demand public speaker. He is uh, very out in the public. Um, you know, it was, and they're, yes, because they're journalists and they're writers and they love to communicate and talk. I think it was, I think it was, it was just devastating for them. Devastating. Tell me what, a little bit about what happened when, when he discovered Disney. What, what is the story behind that? Um, well, his brother Walt was, where was, uh, was always into Disney films. His, he has an older brother, Walt, and his older brother was into Disney films. And he sort of, um, you know, he'd always be watching them. And Owen would just sort of wander. This is sort of after his autism. Owen would wander and, and start watching the films with Walt. And then Owen just became really enamored by these Disney films. And he wasn't, he didn't have speech. He wasn't talking, but he would just watch these films and he would watch them over and over. And then he discovered the remote control mm -hmm. and that he could, he could control these movies with the remote. He could fast forward and rewind. And he would just spend all of his time in the basement of their house, watching these films, fast forwarding, rewinding. And, um, and then he uttered his first word which was juicervos and they were trying to figure out if he wanted juice or what he was saying but he was and then he started rewinding a section of little mermaid where ursula says just your voice and they realized that's what he was trying to say and that was a, a light bulb went off and what happened after this um well the family um realized that they could communicate with owen that he was actually absorbing these movies that he was actually um uh, teaching himself not just language, but also um, emotions. And uh, he was using them as sort of a, a, a guide to, to life. And so um, Ron um, grabbed a Yago puppet one night and he wandered up into his room and he got, he crawled through the covers and he spoke to Owen in the voice of Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> and he said, how does it feel to be you? And Owen said, not good because I don't have any friends. And they had a conversation for a few minutes and that was the first time they had spoke. A clear conversation for the first time. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, do you have or did, did they have a theory as to, as to why it was Disney in particular? Well, there's lots of people with autism all over the world really who gravitate and they, choose, they use Disney films. Um, uh, it's because they're clear the the characters are have exaggerated facial expressions mm -hmm. there's sort of clear emotion it's easy to sort of figure out and they become a sort of a a, a a sort of a roadmap a guide for them um and 
to figure out, you know, how to sort of communicate and how to deal with life. So it's um it's very common. And Owen started a Disney club in his school, and the Disney club became very popular. And there were um by the end when by the time Owen graduated from school, there were um, dozens of kids in this Disney club, and they each went to their communities and started Disney clubs. So this idea of these Disney clubs where they watch a scene and then they analyze it, they they sort of figure out what that scene means in their own lives. Disney, have they been part of this movie and how do they feel about it? Because I'm, I'm assuming as sort of a journey that they have pretty hard rights and league, I mean, to use their films and stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Disney is very, very, very controlling over their intellectual property. Um, you know, uh, I went to Disney early on in the process and really spent a year um, sort of, you know, sort of working with them and going through keeping them informed about what was going on. And then I went out there and I showed them um, halfway through the process. I showed them clips of the movie. I showed them Disney club and graduation. And I, and I showed it to a room of all the heads of all Disney, um, Disney legal and Disney entertainment and marketing. And, and they just, they were in tears. They are so moved that their, their product actually could change someone's life. And I think it just really touched them. And Sean Bailey, who's the president of Disney Productions, was our was the most was our guide, and he helped us through the process because he loved the story. Right, right. Um, and Owen identified with sort of the sidekicks in Disney, which is interesting, right? Yeah, he identified with sidekicks. He um, started to draw uh, Disney characters, um, and um, he drew only sidekicks and Ron was going through his um, sketchbook and he saw that Owen had written in the corner, um, no sidekick gets left behind and I'm the protector of sidekicks. And, and Ron was realized that Owen only drew sidekicks and that's because Owen identifies with the sidekicks in the movies. He said the sidekicks help the heroes fulfill their destiny. And he he feels like a sidekick himself and not a hero. So he creates, he starts to create a story and it's called The Land of the Lost Sidekicks about a little boy at three years old who wanders, who a storm comes and he gets swept into this land of the lost sidekicks where it's all sidekicks and they're all searching for a hero and they have to battle monsters that correspond to the challenges Owen has in his life, like being bullied at school and they have to find their inner hero. And you, you've known the family, you, you know, but, but you came to this story as a filmmaker of the documentary, a particularly sort of important stage in Owen's life, I would say. He was, he was moving out and falling in love. How did, how did he take to you following him around? And how did you approach that as a filmmaker? You know, I wanted to focus on this really transformative year in his life. Owen was about to go through a really transformative year because he was about to graduate from sort of, you know, school, sort of college. Um, and he was about to, um, it's a college for people with special needs, but, and so he was about to graduate. He had fallen in love. He um, was about to move onto his own apartment and um, into an independent living community. And so, I thought this is the perfect this is a perfect year because it's all these sort of big milestones. Everyone graduates, everyone falls in love, everyone eventually has to move out on their own. And um so I follow him through that year, but it was important for me that Owen the story came from Owen's point of view. So he is essentially um our guide and our narrator and I did that by shooting it on an Interatron, which is a camera behind a television screen. So Owen mm. sees 
I'm not sitting with Owen in the room when I'm interviewing him. He's seeing, I'm sitting in another room and he's seeing my face on a television screen. Owen's someone who spent his life looking at a television screen. Right, right. So he can, he can look me in the eyes and the camera is behind the screen. So he's looking the audience directly. He's looking at the audience directly and he's, and he's telling his story. And then I intercut that while I'm talking to him. I'll, I'll play a Disney clip and he'll interact with the clip and the audience is in a sense inside the Disney clip. And inside Owen's head. And um, you used amazing drawings as well to sort of show us the audience how um, he processes media, I guess I would say. Yeah, well, Owen, you know, Owen loves to draw. And um, so we had, we, um, I worked with this amazing company, uh, animation company in Paris called McGuff. And uh, Owen, and they created sort of, we call, we call them the backstory drawings. They're sort of line drawings that really illustrate like the, you know, the, the, how Owen got to where he is and, and the, the challenges they had in the past. And, um, and then we, and then we animate the land of the lost sidekicks, Owen's story that he created, which is really his biography of his life. And we animate that, um, throughout the film in the three sections. Do you have an idea now how it is he processes media and, and what he sees? It's no one will, we won't, we'll never know for sure, but Owen says he sees all of the Disney films at once. He's constantly doing um, dialogue and talk. And if you, Owen, in the beginning of the film, Owen is self-talking a lot and he's pacing and you don't know what he's saying. But by the end of the film, you know exactly what's going on in his head. These, these images, these scenes are constantly all playing overlapping um, in his mind and his mind is racing and there's because um, people with autism we do know this that people with autism the the synopses in their brain fire at a much rapid pace mm -hmm. more rapid pace which is which is why the world is so intense and they and and it's why you it's they have to shut out the world they want and, and focus on an affinity what they call it one thing Owen it's for Owen it's Disney right. so all he says he sees all of these movies in his head at once and they're constantly going Something that was very particularly gripping um, for me in your movie is sort of the family itself, the Suskinds and his older brother, and, and, and seeing that sort of no matter how much love you have, that this is a challenging thing to go through as a family. What did this teach you yourself? Or what did you see about caregiving? Walter, his older brother, has really sort of emerged as one of the uh, great heroes of the film because Walter, you know, Everywhere we go, uh, families with um, members with autism come up to Walter and they say, thank you for expressing what we felt um, and what we were going through because no one ever sort of, you know, really um, sort of addresses the siblings. And what does he say? He says that, you know, it's, it was, it was a tough road and he was in, he was, at first, he was ashamed of Owen as a kid, and um, but and but he realizes that Owen is probably the greatest gift in his in his life because mm -hmm. Owen has taught him so much ab about himself and um and uh, and about caregiving and about being a brother. And Owen is really actually quite quite wise because these Disney films are you know they're they're fables, they're guides to life. They they give us sort of you know sort of these sort of life messages. And Owen has become an expert on that. Um, so for Walt, it really sort of helped him to be a you know, mature and a better person. Um, and I think that for Ron and Cornelia, they learned, they heard how Walt felt for the first time by watching the movie. Mm -hmm. Walt had, hadn't expressed what he expresses in the movie to them. 
Wow. And so it was very, um, it was very emotional for them to to see um, what Walt went through because you're so consumed with, you know, the person you're you're giving care to. You sometimes get, you know, you, get, you sometimes, you know, get lost. Um, and and how are the Suskinds doing? The Suskinds are doing really great. They um, have been. We've been on the festival circuit now since Sundance. We premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and we. Um, and which is in January of this year, and we have been on the road together. We're like a we're like a rock band. We're like <laughs> we're like in vans together, um, traveling all over the country and um, all over the world. And um, we um, and Owen has been thriving as the um, star, the lead singer, so to speak. And he's been he has he loves um, doing Q and As with audiences. And he you could see him kind of running down to the stage. People are on their feet cheering, and he's high five people. And he takes the stage, and he's like, "I feel the love in this room." He's so he's so amazing at oh, it. Really? And, and I think the Suskinds are are they're surprised how much Owen has embraced his newfound celebrity and. We were being interviewed the other day in, um, for um, uh, a newspaper, and they said, um, Owen, how does it feel to be a celebrity? And he's like, I'm not a celebrity. I'm just someone who's being ce- celebrated this year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's doing well. He's at school still? And... No, he graduated. Well, he graduates in the film, and he's living independently and working at the Regal Cinema and um, really doing great. And I want to wish you the best of luck with the movie at the Oscars because it's getting lots of buzz. Thank you. It might be your second. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but um, you know, I'm just happy. You know, we've had a great run. We've had um, we've won seven audience awards. I won the directing award at Sundance. It's um, you know, it's been it's been amazing. So I I you know I, I'm just happy so so far that we've had such a great run with the film. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Wilm. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to director Roger Ross Williams. Life Animated will be screening at the Stockholm Film Festival. Check out our website, popcultureconfidential.com, for exact times. And it'll be released in Sweden later this winter. In the U.S., you can see it on iTunes now. I will go out of my way not to miss the writings of Jessica Kiang of The Playlist for her smarts, new angles, and because she can be just so freaking funny. And if you happen upon her live tweeting from, say, a film awards ceremony, you will not only be informed, but highly entertained. And isn't that just what we need? I thought it was time to talk to Jessica about all kinds of film and pop culture related ruminations that she has had her sights set on during this film year. Jessica, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. And for that wonderful intro that I don't think I'm going to be able to live up to because half of the times that you mentioned, I think I'm drunk. So I'm unfortunately sober right now. Well, then um, I'm sure you will, but then they can go read your stuff, which is... (laughs) So we're still reeling from these debates that are going on with the presidential nominees in the US. And I really wanted to start by referencing one of your latest articles regarding Donald Trump's appearances on TV shows and and such through the years. What is the pop culture persona that Trump has created by his film and TV appearances? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. I think like you and like anybody who, who participates or who or even who even watched that debate or even parts of it, I've been kind of obsessed with it all week. I haven't been able to get it out of my head. 
Um, and I, uh, the interesting thing about that piece that you're referring to, um, which was about his, his TV and film cameos, was that obviously I pitched and kind of conceived of that feature before, uh, long before the, the, um, the debate happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of had an idea of how it was going to be. It was going to be kind of what you say is sort of a, a deconstruction of his persona, the persona that he creates um, that he has created because he has spent a, m- a lot longer of his life, you know, being a reality TV star and being an entertainer, as he calls it, than he has being a, a polit- politician or, or running for, for, for elected office. Right. So, so it was kind of going to be, you know, approached in that quite jokey manner um, and quite lighthearted and sort of, you know, with the agenda to sort of expose the fact that a lot of what he is doing as presidential candidate is is a performance. I mean, he's putting it on. And then I watched the debate, and and actually the debate was just so profoundly depressing <laughs> that I that I found uh, the focus of the of the piece slightly shifting. I didn't I didn't really feel that I could be that lighthearted about it anymore. Right, right. right. Um, and I and I'm not actually sure that it is a performance. Um, that you know all, all of these this, these shenanigans. Um, so I think that, that, uh, yeah, it became a slightly more serious piece. I mean, I, I hope it doesn't come read too seriously, but it became slightly more serious because, because of the nature of the debate and because of the fact that I found it very difficult to, to even to find very much humor in that debate. Um, it really, it really did seem to signal some sort of, you know, uh, point of no return, I suppose, right. um, for how, how far the political discourse has decayed in America at the moment. So, um, I mean, but to your point, uh, you can you can you can uh, comb through his his uh, cameos. His uh, he has many many of them, and actually, a surprising number of them are not available online. Um, and you have to kind of go a little bit further to to search out. But there are consistent through lines, and one of them is the amazing sexism that that just seems to to crop into every single one of his performances. Can you can you give an example? Yeah, well, there's I mean, the, there's a, a fantastic example. Um, people may not know that Donald Trump is, I think, probably the first um, and only presidential candidate ever to have a Golden Raspberry Award, a Razzie. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he uh, he won his Razzie for um, which is which are the the joke award for the worst performances of the year, in case you don't know, um, for this uh, 1989 film called Ghosts Can't Do It with Bo Derek. Um, <laughs> I've, I've actually watched the whole film now because I was transfixed by its awfulness. It's Bo Derek and Anthony Quinn are actually the stars of it. <laughs> but there's there's one scene with with Bo Derek and uh, Donald Trump, and it really it really has to be seen to be believed. It's utterly revolting. Um, but one of the things that it does that is then a kind of a character that is carried over to almost all of his other other uh, cameos and appearances is that the very beautiful woman manages to make some kind of reference to how sexually attractive Donald Trump is. Mm. Um, so and that happens. Uh, with alarming regularity across all of his his uh, film and TV cameos, almost all of them anyway, um, and obviously culminating then in the inf- now infamous Days of Our Lives spot, which was the the piece that he recorded immediately after the now infamous uh, hot mic incident where he's talking about grabbing women by their genitals. Oh, really? Yeah, so so um, he... he he actually literally walked, you can even see uh, Ariana, whatever her name is, I can't remember her surname actually, the actress is in is in the same outfit that she's in in the hot mic uh, video. Okay. Um, and it's it's her, and again, there, she, she, it's such an interesting reversal from what we've just, from what we know he's just said, 
because suddenly he is this sort of imperious, disdainful billionaire, which is the persona that he puts across in all of these um, cameos. cameos. Yeah. Uh, but the woman is basically throwing herself at him. Um, yes, yeah, so which is interesting. Yeah, because I, I remember him and sort of in the 80s, he seemed like he would sort of pop into different sitcoms as, as himself, as the as the um, entrepreneur, builder, Trump, and, and, do, and do have some funny line where everyone thought he was gorgeous. It was, it's very odd to think about it. Yes, it's it's very odd. And, and actually, I mean, one of the things that I, I started to wonder about was, um, you know, because we know that we know now with all of the, the revelations that have come out about his finances, um, even though he won't release all of his tax uh, returns. But um, w with all of those revelations, there's now a question mark hovering over w whether or not, in fact, he is the billionaire that he always portrays himself as. So half the time wh when you're watching some of these these um, uh, these cameos, you're kind of wondering how much of it is him playing himself and how much it's him kind of self-creating an idea of what a billionaire should be. Um, and how he should behave. I'd say the latter, right? I think so. I, th I think the latter. And I think, I mean, it, it is fascinating on a purely, like if you are if you can be as academic as possible and divorce yourself from the fact that this buffoon is running for president, then, I mean, it is on a purely academic level. It's quite an interesting study of performativity. And which he also did, th this persona continued and, and became grew even stronger with The Apprentice. That's right. That's right. And I mean, I, I, I am not a fan of The Apprentice. I haven't, I have, I've maybe watched about four clips of it. Mm -hmm. um, there are 14 seasons of Donald Trump on The Apprentice for anybody who's a, a real completist, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to I could put myself through that. Now, that's a Saturday night marathon, right? <laughs> exactly. I don't think that there's enough wine in the world to get anybody through that. Um, but uh, yeah, so so he, he did absolutely. And then I think that that's that the, his whole, his stint, his tenure on, on The Apprentice, probably more than anything else, in my estimation, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not a political commentator, but in my estimation, it was his stint on The Apprentice and the way that he is talked to and the way that he talks in The Apprentice, that probably gave him the confidence to even think that he should run for office in the first place. Well, let's uh, keep this watching this spectacle is very depressing, but we have just a few weeks left. Let's see where we go. Yes, yes. Um, it can get a lot worse, though. It can always get worse. This is uh, the lesson of this campaign. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, I'm going to switch comp gears completely here to talk a little bit about other things in film. Um, one of the genres of huge film releases that gets a lot of attention these days and, and, and in history as well is our film versions of book phenomenons as as Harry Potter, Hunger Games, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and the, and the latest, Girl on a Train. Are these automatic successes for a studio? And how does this work? Well, I think, I mean, as, as the, the box office numbers just gone can say that there, there are certain factors that they can, that they can you know, uh, leverage to, to create what, you know, in a very uncertain business is possibly, you know, a slightly better bet for a hit. So, girl, the girl on the train on the train um, has did win the weekend in the mm -hmm. U.S. Um, it didn't open huge. I mean, it's it's actually it hasn't it hasn't been a good weekend. In fact, it hasn't been a good month, and it hasn't been a good particularly good year for movies uh, in terms of box office receipts. But um, it it did win the weekend. So, I mean, it was the biggest film opening at the weekend. Um, and I think that I mean they they. Rather, to me, rather than necessarily that it's the the literary phenomenon um, kind of feeding into that success, it's more that they have 
molded it very much around the success of Gone Girl. Mm. Um, that was very, there was very, it was almost inescapable that, you know, even the fact that both, both films have girl in the title, both are based on best-selling page turner thrillers, both by women. Um, and so there's this kind of, um, I think it was just very much seen as being in the mold of Gone Girl. And so if you like Gone Girl, you will go and see, uh, the girl on the train. So that's more, more the, the, the reason for its success to me, really. Can you tell me where you were Friday night? I was in the city and then I went to visit my husband. You mean your ex-husband? It's my understanding that the woman who has gone missing was his nanny. Rachel, I need you to stay away. So what did you do during those hours that night? I don't remember. There's some time missing. What happened that night in the tunnel? Tell me the truth. But don't you think that people sort of, they want to, to everyone, uh, these books that become huge phenomena, basically everyone's read and discussed with each other and, and, and also the, the young adult novels and, and sort of that go over generation. People sort of want to complain about the movie. There's something in that. There's like, yes, make a movie out of it. And then everyone talks about that. And there's something in there that in the spoilers and not the spoilers. And, and that's part of the whole discussion about these remakes, I feel. Yes. No, I actually, I think you're really right. And I think that there's something very interesting going on there that I don't think that necessarily the people who make these movies have capitalized on or possibly even realize. And that's this, I mean, it, it also kind of ties into the wider uh, conversation that has been going on this year about fan fanboys or about like fandom, especially as, as it's set up in opposition to, to criticism a lot of the time. Um, but there is this sense that uh, when you read a book um, and you enjoy the book, and it's even if it's a page turner plot based book, um, you will go and see the film, not necessarily to see, you know, n not for the same reasons that you might go and see a thriller whose story you don't know. You actually almost go because you like to to see the differences between the filmmaker's conception of what happened um, and the, you know, the filmmaker's visualization of what happened and what you yourself thought. And I think that's why it's so important that there is. Um, certainly for me as a critic, in order to make a good movie, that there is something added to that process, that there is an actual vision behind it, because otherwise it is just plodding through the notes of, of the plot of the book and being often being over-literal to the book. But then you have the, exactly what you're saying, these fanboys who don't want to change anything, and you see that in TV too with all these remakes of Lethal Weapon and things like that, and people are just like, if you change it too much, that's a problem. And if you don't change it at all, then that's a problem. I mean, it's, it's it, there's the, this discussion, but I think in some way that that almost helps the movie or the TV show that people are really sort of discussing it. Well, you know, any discussion will, will help a movie. I mean, there there is no such thing as bad publicity, although maybe Nate Parker would, would uh, beg yes, to differ we'll on that one. Yes, we'll get But yes, I think, I think the thing is, uh, yes, you, you might alienate some of the core fan base of a film if you change it significantly. But I don't think that the core fan base is particularly Im Im important to a film's success or failure. Mm. So 
my own take would always be, good Lord, change it up, change it as much as you can, you know, really put your own spin on it, try and do everything that you can. And I think that somebody like David Fincher, I mean, to be honest, for, for me, Gone Girl is, is, is not a particularly great film. I'm, I'm not a, a huge fan of it. I actually probably prefer The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, which are, they're both David Fincher films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I regard them as kind of auteurist piece, pieces rather than sort of very faithful or literal translations of, of what was on the page. Um, so for, yeah, for me, definitely as a, as a, as a film goer and, and now as a film critic, um, I, I like it when people change it up because I like to see how somebody else can have read the same text that I have, but have a different take or a more comprehensive take, or, you know, even just a better visualized take than I did. Um, And I think that there's more people out there who are in that frame of mind than, than the Hollywood studios really give credit for. You noted one thing in an article that I thought that was that was really sort of interesting that that all, a lot of these movies have about women, strong women and 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 multi-layered women all have girl in the title. Uh, you have girl with the dragon tattoo, girl on a train, gone girl. Well, what's your theory on on girls not getting to be women? <laughs> oh, I just uh, well, it's, I think that's just part of the wider culture and now it's become it's become a thing now. Um I think like even it probably did it did date back some somewhat to the success of the girl with the dragon tattoo um and in there i suppose i mean i think she's supposed to be in her early 20s so it's slightly more justified than it is with gone girl and with girl on the train where where these are women in their 30s mm-hmm. um so i i mean i think it almost in a way gone girl in in a way probably referred to girl with a dragon tattoo in, in calling her a girl but also there's there's i mean gone girl itself um has that whole section about the cool girl phenomenon right um and so there is uh i mean it, it's just it's part of the wider culture it's part of the infantilization of women um it's because women is a, a much stronger word and it's almost one that a lot of women are afraid to apply to themselves um, it seems like I, I, sometimes, I mean, I, I almost feel it myself. I feel slightly strange describing myself as a woman because it seems to suggest that I have a level of, you know, adulthood and grown upness that I don't right. necessarily feel. But I, um, I think that we owe it to ourselves and to each other to not be afraid of that word anymore. Right, right. No, I agree. But um, you mentioned Nate Parker. Now, he's come up on the podcast a few times before um, uh, his movie Birth of a Nation com- came out and, and sort of the the whole uh, scandal was sort of brewing around that the movie has now come out in the US right that's right yes can you sort of walk us through again the the scan for those who who may have missed it here and and what happened since the release well okay so the very the, there's there's so many interesting things about this particular controversy and there's and and um i think it's become a kind of a crucible for almost every ism that you can think of for racism for sexism for um even then touching on homophobia in one of his his uh, interviews so what happened was he made uh, nate parker who was pri- pre- previously um a, a, a an actor um he made his directorial debut with the movie Birth of a Nation, um, which is the story of Nat Turner's slave revolt um, and uh, a retelling of that story. Um, And it premiered in Sundance. And because Sundance happened maybe a few weeks before the Oscars, which were already at that stage being hashtagged as Oscars so white, this film from a new black director about a, a black slave rebellion, um, which sort of came loaded with importance. I mean, even the fact that he named it Birth of a Nation after D.W. Griffith's famously racist 
um, uh, you know, early uh, cinema um, pioneer. Right. Um, so it came freighted with this kind of importance, so much so that he got a standing, apparently he got a standing ovation before the film even started, which is kind of ridiculous. So the, so the, the narrative for this film being and an extremely important And then it sold for film, like amounts of money exactly, that sold unheard of in at 17.5 million. Fox Searchlight bought it for 17.5 million at Sundance, which is uh, an, uh, shatters the previous record for a Sundance buy. Right. Um, and it's an enormous amount of money to put behind a small indie film. So it was already set from then that obviously Fox Searchlight were going to be doing a big Oscar push for this film. However, um, then it came out uh, a little bit after that, a few months after that, that uh, Nate Parker had been involved in a rape case when he was back in college. Um, he and actually the, the, the co-writer or the, the co-story credit writer, I should say, of, of, the, of Birth of a Nation had been um, both accused of raping a girl um, when they were in uh, college. Um, and he his response to it that 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 was fairly uh, well known piece of knowledge it was actually on his wikipedia page it wasn't that it was it was you know a sudden sudden revelation so all the people involved in making this movie and giving him sort of the money or, or for this they could potentially have known about this before. I, I mean, I really feel like they must have known. I don't think that you drop $17.5 million on a film without looking at the filmmaker's Wikipedia page. So, I, and I think that that's actually part of the, the issue is that there is the sense that there, that this, the story was being manipulated or the way that the story was going to get out was being manipulated. I think quite rightly, they realized that this story would get out. And so they tried to manage that. Um, and that's part of the sickening feeling that a lot of people got. And part of the off-putting thing was that was the feeling that it was being spun. So it was actually, I think it was Parker himself or certainly somebody from, from his, his camp who kind of got tried to get ahead of that story and, and, and you know, was the first person really to bring it to everybody's attention. Um, and then it became, the, the narrative took over that, 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 you know, there was there was outrage and it, it mainly became about his response to, to uh, the questions that were being asked. And his responses were basically just completely, his initial ones certainly were completely tone deaf and very tin-eared. Mm -hmm. um, and then it transpired later. And I do believe him when he says that he didn't know this, but that in the interim, in, I think it was in 2012, the woman in question had committed suicide. Um, and she had apparently been very, um, very troubled uh, for, for into her entire life by by this incident. And he he was acquitted, right? That was what he was. He was acquitted. Um, and his his co-writer, Celestin, was uh, convicted. But then it was later overturned um, due to improper representation, I think. So mm -hmm. so neither of them. Yeah. So so. Both of the, the well, the conviction was quashed and and Parker was acquitted. I think there's a there's an, another thing, yet another layer going on with this story that there's a, a a very much a sense that if if the same case were to be tried today with what we know about campus rape, mm -hmm, right. um, um, and what we know about this the the kind of the the jock situation where where the you know the the, the jock uh, fraternity type will tend to get away with it. Mm -hmm. um, that the the outcome would probably be different. So there's there's you know lots of layers of of you know the interim the, the the time that has passed, all these things that have happened. And her family spoke out. Her family, her brother spoke out. Her uh, it's really really distressing um, and really upsetting stuff. And then the the worst part of it for me for as like as a commentator, obviously, um, 
was that there is this feeling I have often um, and I and have had often with, with these uh, very troubling and very controversial cases um, of prurience of like I don't I, I during that that whole thing when the when it was revealed that the woman had committed suicide uh, there was sudden flurry on on film Twitter of sort of 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 court transcripts and of you know uh, recordings of 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 tele- telephone calls and things that had gone on as kind of proof and it was suddenly like I was I was suddenly a jury member mm-hmm. um, trying to actually get to the truth of a case that I don't know anything about um, and also then really you know rehashing and and minutely examining the evidence of what was clearly the worst day of this young woman's life. And I really, I had to shut down several tabs that day of just like, what, why am I doing? What, why am I reading this? Why am I, you know, at what point does my own desire to educate myself about the particulars of this case just become something ghoulish and something exploitative of, of somebody else's misery? And this is sort of the, this question that keeps coming up again and again and again about separating the art from the artist. In this case, what you're describing, it seems like, you're not because all this information is coming in as, and as a critic or journalist or someone who's working around this, it's like you still sort of inform yourself about this. And, and for me, at least, it seems very hard to not project that on there then. That's right. I mean, that's right. And, and the, the, the I, I think that, that that's certainly true for, for, for me and for you and for people who work in this industry or even who are cultural commentators. It is important and it is part of your duty to kind of educate yourself Around the issues that are arising around this 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 kind of scandal, um, but there is also then a personal moral line that you have to decide where you know where that line lies between you doing it for for the right reasons and doing it out of some kind of um, self righteous and rather uh, again rather ghoulish uh, fascination with with uh, somebody else's misery. So. Um, you know, the, all of those things played into it, but ultimately what it came down to was like, are you going to go and see Birth of a Nation or not? Right. Um, and again, for, for me, I, it's not something that I particularly really have a choice in because, um, and I, I'm try- not trying to hide behind that, but I, I will, I, I am, I am going to see it because, um, it's, it's under consideration for several awards, things that I'm involved in. So I have to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, the, whether or not you're going to recommend that other people see it is another thing. Um, and I think that one of the things that this has highlighted outside of all of the various other isms, because it is obviously such a, such a concatenation of, of, of issues going on there. Um, one of the things that is highlighted as well is a rather nasty um, tendency uh, within the, the, the cultural community, within the film uh, commentating community even, um, for a kind of extremism. I mean, I think we're seeing it in almost every walk of life at the moment that, that you know, the, the people on either, on either end of the extreme are, are, are taking up all of the oxygen and the people who are in the middle who are maybe just honestly trying to work their way through these issues or taking them on a case-by-case basis, but who are not necessarily definitively saying, yes, the art is, you know, is always separate from the artist or not necessarily definitively saying the opposite, um, that they're somehow, you know, that they're being shouted down a lot of times by, by the more vocal people on, on either end of the spectrum. Right. And that, that was something that was very worrying to me. It was, it seemed to be suddenly an excuse for, um, the very militant, um, element, 
to kind of to shout down those people who were just very honestly, you know, trying to trying to work their way through it and are going to take it on a case by case basis. But now in hindsight, since the movie has gone up, has this affected the criticism of the movie and and the always talked about awards chances? And and, and can you see that now on the other end? Oh, yes, I think there's absolutely no doubt that it has. Um, Aside from anything else, it has it has affected it in the way that Fox Searchlight are, are backing away from it um, as, as an awards hopeful. You don't think it'll be nominated at all? Um, I think, I mean, it might. There, there's, there's been... There's, to things, to different. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm abs- an absolutely terrible awards pro- prognosticator, so you've, you've, really, you've really got me at my Achilles heel. But I think that there's a possibility that it might uh, sneak in uh, a Best Picture nomination if they're going for, for, for 10. Um, but at the moment, if they, because they, you, can, you can go up to 10 nominations, but at the moment, for example, w- with the, you know, countermanding the hashtag Oscars so white uh, problem they had last year. It is already going to be Denzel Washington's Fences, which will come out, mm-hmm. and uh, Barry Jenkins's Moonlight, which is getting absolute raves um, after its its TIFF premiere. And they are both black directors um, uh, p- uh, putting forth movies w- in which I think all of the leads are black. So so it's it's almost like you know, uh, for, in order to countermand that Oscar so white like thing. Like a sigh of relief or something that we... <laughs> yes, exactly, that, that people can, can now back away from it. And I think it definitely has also um, affected how it was received. If you if you uh, read the more recent reviews of, of Birth of a Nation that ha- um, uh, came out like before... Uh, just just before its release, its wide release, as opposed to the ones that came out out of Sundance, they're remarkably muted in comparison, and a lot of them make reference to the fact that this has been th- that the film in itself is not worthy of all of this hype, which I think yeah, because that's what's so weird now. Now you don't know if it's a bad movie or if it's this. Yes, exactly. And, <laughs> or I mean, uh, a, it, a not great movie. I mean, yes, I mean, sure. Yeah. And 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 I think that that that's where the the film can for how culpable we are for you know building up these things and tearing them down um as soon as it as soon as the tide turns against them it's a very odd sort of in in one way it we're in a sort of zeitgeist which is incredibly with incredibly strong um women if we're talking about sort of coming out when when Donald Trump uh, um had his this horrible video come out and and talking about their own things they've been there's even been sort of a, some sexist thing in the film critic community now the past few days and women are coming out and people are talking um and and bringing things up into the open at the same time i mean so that's a positive thing but the same time other things are happening it's a very strange situation and it seems like the lid is off which is good but also making it difficult in many situations yes i mean i think we're 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 in uncharted territory is is the problem and everyone is a little bit unsure everyone's sort of hesitant to step forward and everyone's kind of looking at each other to see how 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 things are going to play out um, and and that's kind of it's it's kind of a cowardly position that that I think a lot of the film community are finding themselves in right now just because they're afraid to really take a stand on any of these issues. Right, right. You've been to a lot of the festivals. You're covering everything about the film year. What are some of the great movies that you see coming um, to the fall to award season and such? And and what are some of your disappointments? Okay, well this is this is going to be fun <laughs> <Yes>. um, because. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, well, uh, 2016 has, I think, has been very disappointing, uh, certainly uh, in terms of the quality of the major blockbusters over the summer. And it has led a lot of people to talk about 2016 as the year of, yet again, the death of movies, which has it's always died died and come back more. <laughs> yes, it's always died. It, it's it's a really, it's a, it's a Lazarus medium. It just keeps on coming back to life. Um, but for anybody who was at the major festivals this year, certainly the major European festivals, the ones that I attended, it's been one of the best years on record. It was one of the best Cannes lineups I've, I've ever seen. Um, and it was certainly the best Venice lineup that I've ever attended. I haven't attended Venice that often. I've, I've only, this is my fourth, third, fourth year. Um, but uh, it was the best one that I'd ever been and certainly the best one that I can remember uh, reporting on either. Um, so uh, Venice, which is probably the one that is most precious in my mind and also the one where the majority of films that will be coming out, of good films that will be coming out in the next while, um, uh, debuted, um, I can say, uh, probably actually in a weird way, the biggest beneficiary of, um, the, uh, scandal surrounding birth of a nation, um, will probably be Jackie, which, um, mm. Pablo Lorraine's Jackie, uh, starring, uh, Natalie Portman, which is about, um, the few days after the death, uh, after the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy, um, as seen through the eyes of his wife, Jackie Kennedy, um, played by Natalie Portman. As I said, Mrs. Kennedy, I wish there were more we could do to accommodate your wishes. I'm terribly sorry. Don't be. You and the Johnsons have already done so much. Good day, Mrs. Kennedy. Um, Mr. Valenti, would you mind getting a message to all our funeral guests when they land? Of course. Inform them that I will walk with Jack tomorrow. Alone, if necessary. And tell General de Gaulle that if he wishes to ride in an armored car or in a tank for that matter, I won't blame him. I and I'm sure the tens of millions of people watching won't either. Why are you doing this, Mrs. Kennedy? Oh, I'm just doing my job. For me, uh, it, it's kind of strange that the, the the conversation, the awards conversation certainly has shifted onto that. Um, uh, Kyle Buchanan of Vulture um, did a, a very interesting rundown where he identified the fact that he has seen, he has seen the film, as have I. And I think it's an absolutely brilliant film. I love that you like it because those th those type of biopics can really go either way. <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly. And it's, it's probably my actual least favorite genre in the world. It's my kryptonite ordinarily. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I really love this, but I'm a huge fan of Pablo Lorraine and, and I have this um, ultimate faith that he's always going to turn in something interesting, even in, in genres that I, I normally can't stand. Um, and he he really did it with with Jackie for me he, I mean for me Jackie is very much a Pablo Larraín movie um and it is quite odd and experimental and I don't think it, it's it's not Grace of Monaco it's not you know uh what people might be expecting a biopic of Jackie Kennedy to be um which is why I think it's interesting and this is what Buchanan did in his Vulture piece just he just he just sort of identified the fact that like even the trailer that they put out is it's a beautiful trailer and it's beautifully done for Jackie but it, it sells a much more Oscar-y, traditionally prestige biopic than the film actually is. Ah, okay. um, I think it's an interesting tactic and I think it might, it might work very well because I think that people will go and see the film. I'm not sure if they're going to come out um, feeling particularly satisfied with what they've seen because uh, for me, the film is very, is very much a Pablo Larín film, even mm. rather than a Natalie Portman film. Um, uh, so uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. And I am, obviously I'm, 
I'm delighted if, you know, a, a film that I admire so much and a director that I admire so much seems to be getting more traction. Um, I just, I hope it's for the right reasons. Um, uh, so uh, a couple of other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of other things. I mean, I, I was a huge fan of Denis Villeneuve's Arrival mm-hmm. um, with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. Um, I think it's really, really smart, gentle, philosophical, a weirdly uplifting, although also very melancholic sci-fi. Um, I think it's a really, really brilliant film. Um, it's my favorite of his films. I've, I've had issues with kind of everything that he's done, although he has been on an extraordinary run of form um, for the last few films. But I, I wasn't such a fan of Sicario, for example, mm-hmm. although it was beautifully shot. Um, I thought Prisoners was a, kind of an example of him making a, a you know, almost overdoing the, the the style and the, um, I suppose, investing what was something of a silly story with a, a lot of gravity and a lot of seriousness. I think he's an excellent filmmaker and he brings that to the table always. And we aren't tired of melancholic sci-fi? <laughs> no, no, I'm not tired of melancholic okay. sci-fi at all. It's probably my favorite thing, but moving from, moving from celebrity biopics to uh, melancholic <laughs> sci-fi. If there's one thing I love, it's melancholic sci-fi. But it's actually, for me, it's, it's actually not melancholic sci-fi okay. at all. It's, it's actually quite uplifting. Um, and it, it, for our arrival. I remember when The Martian came out, everyone was like, yay, not melancholic sci-fi. <laughs> not melancholic sci-fi. It's true. Um, it, it is, it's absolutely not The Martian. I can tell you that. Um, but, uh, for me, what's so surprising about it? I mean, it, it's it's an incredibly surprising film. There's a there's a wonderful third act reveal, um, uh, but what's so surprising about it is it just it just seems to go further than the the likes of you know Interstellar or Contact or any of those probably which are which are the things that people are referring to right. as melancholic sci-fi. It goes further in thinking through its conclusions, and that's because it's based on a very clever uh, short story. Um, and I think all of those things are there in the short story, but, but Villeneuve really brings them to life. There are days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. War objects have landed around the world. I'm never going to be able to speak their words. You got two days. Figure something out. I am human. It's their language. We need to make sure that they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. It's possible they're prodding us to fight among ourselves. This is just a way to force us to work together for once. It's more complicated than that. How is it more complicated? Russia just executed one of their own to keep their secret. We've got 21 hours before they start global war. So how do we clarify their intentions? I go back in. It's a really enriching um, and a surprisingly cerebral um, experience. I really, really enjoy it. And it doesn't it. have girl in the title, the short story. It doesn't have girl in the title Arrival as well. Girl. So it, gets, yeah, it gets double points for that. Science girl. Yes. Good. <laughs> and, and, and any any other ones? Um, yes. I mean, lot, lots. Uh, La La Land. Uh, yes, huge, so enjoyable, um, hugely enjoyable musical. That'll be coming out soon. Damien Chazelle's follow-up to Whiplash. Um, and I think, I think that will be... Pro- I think that will do something at the at the Oscars as well. Um, if for nothing else, and for Emma Stone's performance, um, she's wonderful in it. Um, and it's just a really, it's a, a sort of really joyful, but again, kind of slightly bittersweet by the end, but very wise um, and very loving tribute to to the musicals of old, but not so much that not not beholden to them and not kind of 
weighed down by it. Um, and there's a very much there's very much a modern spin on the musical as well. Um, and the, and I love that they're not quite perfect. Their their voices aren't perfect, and their dances aren't perfect. They're not Fred and Ginger, you know. And oh, I can't wait for this. It's one. it's really lovely. It's really lovely. Um, uh, and then there's uh, one more time with feeling, which I don't know how how that's getting a release at the moment because it, it's it's the um, Andrew Dominic uh, documentary about Nick Cave. Mm, yes, um, which is uh, utterly sublime. I mean, an utterly amazing film. Yeah, it only went one night. I think one night, but I, I think it, it will it will definitely be getting a proper release as well. I mean, I, I just don't see how it how it can't. Certainly, when when Twenty Thousand Days on Earth, which was the previous documentary about Nick Cave, did actually get a, a fairly hefty, a fairly decent distribution. Um, I, I can't see how this one wouldn't, and it's it's wonderful. Most of us don't want to change. I mean, why should we? What we do want is sort of modifications on the original model. We keep on being ourselves, but just hopefully better versions of ourselves. But what happens when an event occurs that is so catastrophic that you just change? You change from the known person to an unknown person. So that when you look at yourself in the mirror, do you recognize the person that you were? But the person inside the skin is a different person. I'm a huge fan of Andrew Dominic anyway, the, the, the director. Um, not so much for his subsequent film, but, but for the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which I think is possibly my favorite film of this millennium so far. Um, I, I just think he's a, a really wonderful director. Um, and the fact that he's he's got such interesting, such amazing access to Nick Cave at such uh, an interesting and tragic juncture in his life, because uh, for, for those who don't know, Nick Cave's son, uh, 15-year-old son, died last year in in November of last year. Um, uh, he fell from a cliff near their house in Brighton. Um, and this, the, 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 his most recent album, Skeleton Tree, which is also, I'm, I'm a Nick Cave fan anyway, which is also, I think, his best album for a long time. Um, he had written all of the songs for that prior to his son's death, but was recording them after. Um, and Dominic has uh, access to those recording sessions. And also then I think, you know, obviously can, you know, um, make his make uh, take a little artistic license with that as well but there's a lot of interviews and there's a lot of um uh um, studio-based footage as well um but it's 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 shot in 3d which is seems so bizarre in black and white 3d and when i was going in i was like good lord i mean it just seems like a a ridiculous thing and then about five minutes in you're suddenly like oh of course this is in 3d this makes so much sense um yes it's a beautiful glossy gliding camera um i've never seen the handheld 3d done so so well um aside from anything else on a technical level uh it's really beautiful and really inspiring and so obviously so deeply deeply sad um and a, an, an amazing um, uh, uh, examination of the of the grief process and of the grieving process. Um, Nick Cave himself is such an interesting and intelligent, um, uh, very self-examining person, um, uh, for artist actually, I should say, because he, he does put a lot of it in the context of, of the music that he's making in the context of, of an artistic life lived. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, 
bizarrely again um uh, maybe i'm maybe i'm weird that i keep on finding uplift in incredibly sad things <laughs> but um but but um while it's utterly devastating and uh, there was not a dry eye in the house and yeah, yeah. um, uh it is at the same time there is something beautifully choral about the idea that we can all share in this and there's something very generous about that as well that he would be so open in such a in such a uh, you know a horrible time of his life um and aside from all of that it's it's um, a brilliantly made film, a brilliantly conceived and shot film. Um, and because Dominic knows uh, Nick Cave, Nick Cave has provided the soundtrack for, for his films. Um, so because, you know, Andrew Dominic and Nick Cave have a personal relationship, there's also kind of, for me, there was a sort of a, a meta thing of like how, uh, of Dominic almost trying to work through how to be a friend to somebody. His grief. How, yes, exactly. His own grief and, and what his own responsibility is to his friend who has had the worst thing that you can possibly imagine happen to him that's that's i can't wait for that one i hope i hope that it gets a distribution that we can see it soon mm, i really really hope so i really hope so finally any any disappointments that everyone else is hyping and, and that people are talking about that you just didn't um yeah i mean i'm not sure if disappointment is quite the word but um i was not a fan of voyage of time terence malick's documentary mm. Um, I think uh, the reason that I, I, I wonder if disappointment is the word is because it's exactly what I expected it to be. That's our big fight here at home because my husband loves uh, Tree of really? Life. Really? Yes, oh, I don't. Oh, no, I, oh I, I really, I, I actually love Tree of Life as well. Well, I love the family parts of Tree of Life, but the yes. dinosaur philosophy, I don't. Yes, well, well, you are not going to like Voyage of Time then, because it's basically like an extended version of the dinosaur sequence. Yes. Um, uh, it's it's that played out to 90 minutes. There's also a 40-minute IMAX version, which I didn't see. And I can imagine the 40-minute IMAX version be being better. in that IMAX-y way, kind of, yeah, it, it could be better. Um, this, the 90-minute one, which is voiced by Kate Blanchett, who has the most beautiful, oh, amazing, yeah. uh, you know, dessert voice. It's fantastic. Um but again, it's very abstruse, abstract, um, rather pretentious things that she's saying about, you know, whispering to the cosmos as though the cosmos were her mother. Oh, so no. there's a lot of mother, father sort of stuff going on in the voiceover. No, see, this does not work on me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really didn't work on me either. And and the the images, which are, which are very beautiful, but, you know, are very beautiful and kind of wondrous and I know that he uh, invented a whole bunch of new filming techniques to to get some of the sort of um, evocations of nebula colliding and whatnot and um, that you have at the beginning but I mean after a while it, it that just becomes a screensaver it becomes wallpaper you know it's it's very beautiful and there's a lot of craft has gone into them but because there's 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 no particular narrative there and there's not even any particular insights um, that he's giving uh, I just I just found it so easy to tune out that it ended up sort of washing over me. So I guess that was a disappointment. Jessica, can, this was so much fun. I hope I can call you back another time. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Please do. <laughs> Thank you so much again. Cheers, lovely. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you so much to Jessica Kiang. You could read her stuff on theplaylist.net and don't forget to follow her on Twitter. And thank you again to director Roger Ross Williams. And don't forget to check out Life Animated if you're here in Stockholm at the Stockholm Film Festival or on iTunes in the U.S. And thank you for listening. Check out our site at popcultureconfidential.com and tweet to us or about us on Pod Pop Culture. 
This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Borg, and produced by Rene Witterstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.